Welcome everyone to the Volrath feed. I'm your host, Justin Pearson, and today's a little bit special because Rich is off doing some corporate training. Ha, imagine that, our corporate <laughs> trainer getting trained. So with me on the front end and throughout the rest of the show, we have Nate Wolfel. Nate, welcome to the show as a co-host. Hey, Justin. Awesome to join you on the front end of the show instead of the back side of it. It's kind of cool. This is going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so I'm so happy to have you here. I've, honestly, I was getting so tired of Rich. Uh, you know, <laughs> no. <laughs> he, well, uh, hey, we know he doesn't listen to these on the after we produce them anyway, so you can get right, away with right. saying that. <laughs> he, he has a hard time listening to his own voice, so <laughs> we can say anything about him. He will not, not be the wiser until somebody emails him or something. <laughs> No, but yeah, I think it's great, you know, that Rich is actually, yeah, out doing some training because that's obviously a huge component of everybody at the Volrath company is is continual education. Things are always changing, always shifting, and, and we have to stay on top of it. So that's where he's at. And he's actually training with CIFA today. Is that right? Yep, you're right. You're right. One of our one of our buying groups that we work with. And yeah, I, learning is such a big part of what we do here. It's part of why it's fun to work here that... I, I've mentioned it, I think I mentioned it when we had Paul, our CEO on the podcast, that the products we make, we don't make in a vacuum. They come mm -hmm. through continued learning and expertise that's developed over years of training, years of experience and chatting and having a dialogue with people who are in the industry using products who have real needs and real problems that have to be solved. And it's just got to be interesting for Rich to be the student instead of the teacher, but he does do that on occasion, but it's probably a bit of a shift for him. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, you hit the nail on the head there about the dialogue and we can educate ourselves to the ends of the earth, but if we're not listening, if we're not hearing the feedback from our customers, our clients, our salespeople, boots on the ground, if we're not paying attention to that, if we're not applying what they've learned on the job, then it really isn't going to do us that much good in the end. I think there is no way you could feasibly run a business for any period of time based on food service without having people within food service talk to you and give you feedback and explain their situations because it's an evolving and growing industry. It's as the world changes, so does food service. And in order to stay on top of that, there are people who are, yes, we do our best to read surveys and to look at studies and to assess situations from our standpoint, but we work with so many wonderful people who are on that line every single day who have had mm -hmm. to live this, whose livelihoods depend on this. And that's <laughs> right. just, that is so valuable to have the, the kind of chef partners we're able to work with and operators who are willing to share their time and expertise with us and to have dealer partners and buying groups we work with who, who will come to us and say, here's what we're hearing. Here's what we're seeing. Here's are the conversations we are having with our customers working together in a big group and forming sort of a brain trust that drives this whole puppy forward, mm -hmm. I think is a great way for our company to just make sure our finger truly is on the pulse of what's happening rather than us, you know, sitting in our offices or in our workspaces, just thinking that we do. Yeah. And one of the great things about working in Volrath for me personally is I've, I've been with the company two and a half years ish now, and I'm always learning, always learning something new. Um, we're such a diverse organization with so many different facets and components to our business. I like, I, I was just learning a lot about our custom products recently and everything that goes into that and how anybody can really just call up custom products and be like, Hey, we have this problem. What can you do for me? And then 
that just gets the ball rolling. And it's it's amazing what innovation comes out of just a little bit of dialogue between a client and our custom products people and what they come up with. And it's quite incredible. There was there was one thing with, uh, I was editing some video and uh, for our one of our own training videos. And what I learned about, there was a client that had a problem with their soup warmers running out of water. And of course, we all know if you've ever dealt with a soup warmer, you've got to have that water in there to create the steam. So you have consistent temperature. So your food stays at a, a, a safe temperature for your customers. And they were running out of water. So it was it was a simple innovation of like, well, why don't we put an indicator light for when the water level is low? And it was such a brilliant thing that that small innovation right there was incorporated into all the soup warmers. It's like, that is so good and simple and elegant that it just needs to be everywhere. And you mentioned our, you mentioned, you know, it's kind of fun to learn about this as you grow in the company. I mean, I, I've been here almost seven years and I, I still have instances like this where, <laughs> well, we have so many SKUs, we have so many products and you finally get around to asking the question, hey, what's the origin story of this thing? Where did mm. this thing come from? And it's incredible how many times the answer is, well, so-and-so called us up. They had a problem. They're a chain restaurant. They're a hotel chain. They're a, I mean, in some cases, even a um, more of a regional type of fast casual operation, whatever the case may be. And they had a problem and we were able to solve that problem for them. Well, as it turned out, as we told other people about this problem we solved, they had the same problem. And now this product that started out as a custom solution for one company or one uh, group of businesses is now a standard item in our catalog. And it all started because someone, we had that dialogue with someone who was having a challenge and we were able to solve that for them. And it's, I always think about, you know, the cheesy line you always hear, well, there are no dumb questions. If you have a question, someone else here probably has that question. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in a seminar whatever. This is the product version of that. There are no dumb food service challenges. If you are struggling with something, someone else has struggled with it. And if they don't have the solution, it's quite possible one needs to be created. And it's really cool uh, to look back on a handful of the products we've made that actually did uh, fill uh, fill uh, gaps where there were challenges that hadn't been addressed by the industry or other manufacturers. It's kind of cool to be able to take pride in that. Oh, for sure. I, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this because I'm terrible at remembering uh, <laughs> quotes and sayings and stuff. But what does it go like? Something like necessity is the mother of all invention. You know, you, you have a need and so you got to create. And part of that is surrounding yourself with brilliant people, which I feel like we, we certainly do here. And uh, the future of the business and the industry in general is really propelled forward by a lot of smart people <laughs> and I'm grateful for all of them. And and speaking of smart people and people who push our business forward, that brings us to our guest today. I'm so excited to be introducing Chef Erling Wu Bauer, who is a partner at Underscore Hospitality in Chicago, Illinois. And we've done a lot of work with Chef Erling in the past, but this will actually be my first time uh, speaking with him. So I've, I've watched a lot of his his content and uh, he's just a, a brilliant person and and a great personality and a wealth of knowledge so i'm really looking forward to picking his brain about you know where modern restaurant concepts are going in the future and i think that besides everything you just mentioned about chef erling He's a great resource, not only because he has such a forward thinking mind and has the industry experience to back it up and kind of meld those things together, but also this is a great time right now and where we're standing as a society to look back on and to look forward as to what changes are going to stick and what uh, we, 
the last few years, what everyone has been through in the food service world, to think that we're somehow going to get back to the way things used to be is foolish, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's going to be great to have a conversation about, well, what does the future look like? Maybe not even the future in five years. What should the future be looking like in three months? Yeah. Because changes have happened and it's happened to a lot of people in our industry at different rates. But I think this will be a good opportunity to sit down with an expert to figure out what changes should really be implemented sooner rather than later if they have not been implemented already. And I'm curious to talk with Chef Erling about the cultural side of things and cultural norms that have come about mm -hmm. through the dining process that have either been challenged or have been changed in the last two years or so. And I think he's just going to be a wonderful resource for this. Right. Yeah. And we've really been hammering this uh, hard, you know, the past several episodes specifically, but over the course of two years. But really, we've been hammering the point of what is the future going to look like? We've been talking to a, a lot of great people, uh, a lot of designers recently, too, where, you know, what what's going to happen? You know, we're trying to look into that crystal ball, you know, we're trying to shake that, that magic eight ball out and, and get an answer so that we can kind of prepare, you know, what's going to stick, what, uh, what's going to go away. And, ah, oh, man, it's, I really don't envy the people who have to forecast that, those types of things because it's still at any given moment, things could change at the drop of a hat with a new variant, with new regulations. Uh, who knows? Who knows? And I think that underscores the importance of adaptability. You do mm -hmm. not have to be someone who can predict the future as long as you are someone who can quickly either identify changes that are happening or be able to react to changes that need to be made. And I think you have to be, you have to be one thing or the other. You either have to be, have some sort of amazing power and insight to see into the future, or you have to be like the rest <laughs> of us mere mortals and you have to be able to react in a quick and meaningful way. And I know Chef Erling has a, a lot of thoughts on adaptability and mm -hmm. the importance of that. And I think, I think that that's going to be something we certainly get into with him as well. That's right. So, uh, Welcome to this episode, Power of the Pivot. So, <laughs> <laughs> you wrote my title for me already. I love it. We're oh, done. We're done. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> Wrap it up. We're out. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's time that we now get to our guest and really just lay it all out there. You know what? What does it look like going down the road? You know how are we going to thread the needle that we are being faced with? So once again, I'd like to welcome to the show Chef Erling Wu Bauer. Chef, welcome to the Volrath feed. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we know that you've done lots of great things with Volrath. This is actually my first time getting the chance to meet you, and I'm really excited. So can you just briefly take us on a journey? What brought you to where you are today? So I, uh, I've always been destined to be a line cook, I think. I know that sounds lame <laughs> as hell. Um, but, you know, like, I, uh, I was born and then I want to be a line cook. No, but I uh, I went to college. Um, this is a requirement of the family that you go to college, um, which I'm incredibly grateful for. I have a, have a super useful degree in philosophy. And, um, <laughs> but the whole time I was in college, I was running supper clubs, doing crazy things like, you know, driving in my friend's Wrangler to buy little tiny pigs and then roasting them on spits that we made from trees we cut down. Just like dumb, dumb stuff that was like incredibly <laughs> rewarding. And uh, so then, you know, in between the years of college, I really started doing staging and, and working at different restaurants. That That's where like my formation really came up. Uh, I worked at a place called Citrella in California. 
um, did some really formative stages with Michael Tuscott Quince in San Francisco. And all the while, and I think maybe most importantly, was really reading ravenously, um, kind of like the Alice, the Alice Waters school of California cuisine, right? I, was, mm-hmm. I went the California direction. Um, and mm-hmm. that's really where the, the, the foundation still is today, right? Um, so I, I really like to say that I got into cooking through reading, and it really is true. I was reading Alice Waters and Paul Bertoli's cookbooks. Um, hmm. Richard Olney, another, another huge one. Um, you know, when I got out of college, I immediately went to work for Paul Kahn at Avec. Um, and honestly, I would stay with Paul for the next 15, 15 years um, as, a, as, a, as a line cook is where I started at Avec, just getting, you know, your ass handed to you on the oven <laughs> at Avec. Um, and then uh, sous chef, executive sous chef, chef de cuisine, and then partner with Paul. So, um, you know, I, I worked on the line for three, three and a half years before I became a sous chef at the Publican. Um, I was the executive sous chef at the Publican and Publican Quality Meats. I opened up Publican Quality Meats. Mm-hmm. And I be, kind of became a, an opening specialist, right? So opened up the Publican, opened up Publican Quality Meats, um, kind of renovated or and not renovated, um, revamped Avec, built um, Nico Osteria and built the Kitchens of the Thompson Hotel from there went on and built and opened Pacific Standard Time. So I just I kind of became an opener of sorts. I love the publican. I, I took my wife there a number of years ago, and it was just a remarkable experience and it was just everything about it. Uh, when, uh, when were you, Sue, there? I guess that would be 2008 when we opened. I think that's about right. So then about four years after that, so 2012. Oh, so yeah, that was right about when we went. So, huh. Our paths may have crossed. <laughs> it's a singular restaurant in the United States. There's not nothing, nothing else like it. No, that's that's for true. So, but uh, coming back to your philosophy degree, I was told uh, a while ago by somebody that uh, no no education you have is wasted. Uh, and this was at the time when I was really bemoaning my musical education path. <laughs> I was I was a music ed major for like three or four years and then decided that I didn't want to become a choir teacher because that was pretty much the career path I was headed down. And uh, somebody much wiser than I said, you are going to use what you learn in some capacity. So I believe that you probably have incorporated a lot of what you gained from your philosophy degree into who you are as a, a, a chef and professional today. Uh, or am I totally off base? No, no, okay. 100%. No, no, no. You're right on. Like, I, I can't. I use it all the time, right? It's from really practical things to very non-practical things. Like, from a non-practical point of view, logic and rationale are really important to me, whether I'm talking to a dishwasher or whether I'm talking to an executive sous chef and how I manage them. Like, being, using, building an argument presenting that argument, right, so that like they know that where I am is based in logic, that's really important to me. From a practical perspective, I can write a coherent email. And, like, <laughs> dude, like, let me We tell laugh, you like, but that's a big deal. It's true. It is a big deal. Like, like people are like, man, you write such clear and concise emails, and I'm like, yeah, and you have to too, because it's gonna make us a more effective team. And like, I learned that in college, right? Like, I didn't learn that in high school. I learned how to write efficient paragraphs that like, I can go on vacation and write five paragraphs and everybody knows what I want and when I want it, right? Like, all the time, sous chefs, one of the first things we did at the hotel was we had our correspondence as chefs. There was Nico Osteria, 
I think there was 12 of us. I'd never managed staff that big. And the emails that would come and the lack of punctuation, it was just, it was impossible to follow. So one of the first things and one of the most effective things I did as a chef was to sit the chefs down and say, I expect you guys to write coherent emails that use punctuation. Everybody was like, you're crazy. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. And it's a requirement no matter what. And you know what? We immediately function much better as a chef unit right thereafter. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, wars have been fought over a misplaced comma, you know? <laughs> yes, for sure. So, for sure. So. As an opener, quote unquote, using your term, what are some of the challenges that come with that? Because every concept has its own unique traits and quirks and characteristics in a different staff, a different layout, different equipment, potentially. What are some of the challenges that come with being the opener, in your case, oh, several times over? It's just a mountain of a challenge. I think that's why I love it so much. There's nothing that isn't a challenge, right? Like it's, it's picking this. It's, it's. I, I mean, it's an addiction, um, <laughs> and uh, the, the problem with it is that as an opener, you become so addicted to the opening that like regular operation becomes a little bit dull. I, I'm aware of that, right? But um, it is true. You know, what I tell everybody going into opening is that like. And it's become very valuable. It's become one of my stump speeches, if you will. It's like massive things will go wrong. It's not just that small things will go wrong. And like you have to just take those things in stride. And I will too, right? It's just like, hey, the concept that you thought of for this restaurant is not working. It could be that big. And we change, mm. right? That's the, key. That's the key to opening. Wow. What does a pivot like that look like? I mean, that's just got to be like a, a gut punch of all gut punches when somebody realizes a concept is off base. Um, yeah, but I mean, like, it's, it's, it's a question of being able to pay payroll though. Right. So like, it's not like, so what's a good example of this, right? Like at, at Pacific standard time, one of the concepts that we had was that we were going to mix shared food with individually plated food. Right. And it was such a busy restaurant that we quickly realized that like everything had to be shared. Otherwise, like the length of tickets was going to be such that the expediter couldn't even keep track of service. Had to be mm. an order fire concept versus a much more like developed concept. And we had to, we just had to, we had to scrap it and go. It's rare that the flavors that you want to do are going to be different, right? But like, what mm -hmm. if like, you, you know, you build a grill and it's the heart and center of your concept and the restaurant's way busier than you thought. And like the grill can't be like you want every person to get this like grilled entree that's super beautiful, but like the grill just can't handle the heat, right? No pun intended. You got to change, right? You have to say like, right. we need more salads, we need more roasted things, we need more room temperature dishes. So like, that's what I mean. I mean, those are big changes, right? Absolutely, yeah. And that's kind of what the future is looking like is how well you can adapt and adjust. I mean, that we've really been hitting this topic hard about like, what is the future? of any establishment look like and adaptability nate and i were talking about it's you've got to be able to adapt because who knows what's going to change so what are, what are some of the things that you're looking at now as far as equipment that can be adaptable and or things that can have more than one use uh, what are some things that you're implementing coming out of covid you know, I, I, I get asked this question every now and again, and I, I've just—I think I'm just very adaptable to begin with. So maybe I'm not the best person to ask it. I don't <laughs> build—not <laughs> to—not to toot my own horn. I, I don't build very specialized <laughs> kitchens, right? Like I'm always—you know—when it comes to something, it's not a Volrath piece, but people are like, "Oh, do you want like some sort of combi oven, some thirty thousand dollar combi oven?" I'm like, "Nah, just give me like a used double convection. I'm fine." 
right? And it's just like we don't need to make these really expensive decisions that are gonna that might cost us down the line. I mean, maybe a combi is a bad example because it's actually a really useful piece. But like, you know, what if you're gonna build a restaurant and muscles were gonna be really important and you installed like automatic like the the muscle steamers, like those built-in muscle steamers you can buy, right? That's that's you've specialized. You're a muscle restaurant, and and that's not that changeable. Whereas if I put in a six burner stove. I can do anything on a six burner stove. Shit, I can grill on a six burner stove. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I think these are the kind of decisions we need to make, like get less specialized, develop more skill as a cook, which is exactly the opposite of what we did in the last five years as a restaurant industry. We, 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 we started cooking in bags and cooks forgot how to cook. Hmm. I was doing, you know, at the beginning of COVID, I was doing, I did a couple of online cooking classes with a couple of chef buddies, Rick Bayless, Ty Dang, and we cooked a whole meal on on butane burners in front of a camera. And after both meals, both me and Rick and me and Ty had the same experience. It, this, it's kind of the, the same thought, which was like, man, like a lot of cooks can't do that anymore and just be given a butane burner and cook a steak perfectly, right? <laughs> like they don't have that capability. Um, and that's, that's a bummer. So like, I think that's another thing is not yet be general when you design your kitchens, but also like, let's learn how to cook again, because mm. a, a cook who knows how to cook, you don't have to retrain them on new techniques. You're just like cook steak, right? Right. Rest steak, right? That, 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 that concept exists in every cuisine, right? So, you know, I think that's also something important is like, let, let's get, let's develop our general skills as cooks again, as opposed to the specialized ones. How do you do that in your concepts? Because it's one thing if the people that you're working with, the staff you've hired, they are well-rounded cooks with a host of experience, no problem. But if it's someone who most of their experience was at a very um, highly conceptualized place where it was very specific and you kind of need to either train or retrain, what does that process look like from your end of things? Come to me first. <laughs> Tell all those cooks to come to me first. Problem um, solved. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just a, a, I mean, unfortunately, for a lot of those cooks, it's a willingness to, to start from the bottom again. You know, I, I'll develop a training program so that you get the training you need um, from me or from other chefs, right? Like things like, you know, like when you're cooking a piece of meat, you have to be physically in contact with it. You have to like your steak, you have to know what it feels like. You have to know what it smells like when it's cooking a certain way. You have to know, you know, how the grain runs and how to cut across the grain. Uh, but I, I would promise those cooks that I'll get next to them, right? And we'll talk through the process. It's pretty intuitive. Like once you begin to learn it, you don't have to, you don't have to think too much about it. Um, but a good cook who is cooking in a specialized restaurant will be a good cook pretty quick, pretty quickly in a non-specialized restaurant, right? Talent is talent. True, mm. very true. And I, I've always been a, a firm believer in um, hire the right personality, and the rest, if you have the right leadership in place, that is, then the rest will come. Yeah, yeah. What is it? What is the line? Ninety-five percent of people leave positions because of bad bosses, right? So, yep. like, if leadership is, if you have good leadership, becomes the most important part of that phrase, I think. For sure. You mentioned something interesting I want to follow up on, and it wasn't a question I was planning on asking, but when you were just talking through that quick process of, of, of kind of starting from the bottom and reworking everything, you mentioned three senses already just in that little quick explanation. If you had to take taste away, what would you say of the remaining senses is the most important for a skilled cook smell. or a skilled chef? Smell. Yeah. I mean, I, I use, it's an all sensory experience, but you know, when you cook, but 
I can tell you by smell just about anything, right? I can tell you what's cooking. I can tell you've undercooked it, overcooked it. I can tell you if it was frozen or not, right? Like all this stuff has smells. Hmm. What does undercooked smell like? I, I think we all know what overcooked smells like. What is under? <laughs> if you had to describe it, I, what is, it's more that like a, as like the smells like if you're grilling a piece of fish, I know what the fish smells like when it first hits the grill versus when it's about ready to be taken off the grill. Got that's it. what I okay. would tell you, right? Cool. That's cool. Hmm. Okay, I've never thought of it that way. That's interesting. Yeah. Follow up question to that is, how does a person work on training their nose? Is it just something you got to spend time at doing? Or are there like specific things that yeah, you consciously pay attention to? I mean, this is why it's so important what Anthony Bourdain said, right? Like cooking is not an art, it's a craft, right? And mm -hmm. the way you get good at a craft is just by like repetitive execution, right? Like I, I am a bad amateur woodworker. <laughs> As I do things over and over again, like I just learn how cedar is different than oak, right? I didn't know that <laughs> until until you get in and you do it, right? And you can put your nail into cedar and you can't put your nail into oak. Like that's a big moment of realization, right? You got to do the same thing with food. Um, an another interesting skill that I have that kind of has to do with Volrath, just in inane kitchen knowledge, is I can tell you what piece of equipment was dropped based on the sound that it makes when it hits the floor. <laughs> like seriously, That's... like that was a nine pan that hit the floor. That was a four ounce ladle that just hit the floor. That was the that was the top of a Roboku. It's crazy. <laughs> oh, that's. That, you know, I think we we should definitely do some type of like follow up. We do a blind you know. test. Yeah, we'll do. Yeah, we'll do. A, we'll do a, a blind test. You know, <laughs> we're just based off of sounds. That would be fun. The Volrath stuff it. sounds more sturdy because it is. You know, I <laughs> <laughs> might even be able to brand it. Uh, that's amazing. all right. I'm gonna. I'm definitely coming back to that uh, at some point. Where. That'd be a great TikTok series, I think. <laughs> you've, got, you've got Justin making notes already. Yep, yep. <laughs> Erling, uh, in your experience opening all of these different places and being in different restaurant settings, I'm going to ask you to get on your high horse for a second. In your estimation, what, <laughs> in your estimation, what is something that most restaurants, especially the new ones, get wrong out of the gates? If there's a common error or a, common, a most common mistake – what's going wrong it's, and what is the remedy to that fault it's not their fault but like the way that you can cut budget as you design get closer to closer to opening happens to be things that you really can't cut let me give you a great example soundproofing mm. soundproofing is so ridiculously important in a restaurant and like sound considerations but yet when you come down to it, you're like, man, there's $15,000 in the budget for this spray insulation on the ceiling. Cut it. Like, that's a massive mistake. And I've made it. I'm telling you because I've made it. And it costs, costs you thirty grand in front. It costs you sixty grand after you open. So it's even worse. Not only did you make the mistake, but now it's going to cost you more to fix it. And it's really just like you're coming down to the line. And if you're an, if you're an individual restaurateur, you're just like, shit, like, I don't have backup. Like, i got to make these decisions based on how much money is in the bank. And you make the wrong decisions versus like, let me just go to Crate and Barrel and buy the cheapest plates I can find. That's easy to fix. Like saying like, you know what? We really don't need, just take that whole server station out. Like we don't even need the sink there. That's, 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 so that's the wrong decision. Um, or it's like, you know, man, I really want those chairs, but, um, but take some of the speakers out. We don't need all those speakers. These, these are 
right? These are things that are in the walls versus things that you can like buy new and these decisions just cost you so much money down the line. But it's impossible to know, it's really hard to know unless like you've made the mistakes. Um, and I made them, I made them big time. So, mm. you know, that's the, I mean, did that answer your question? I'm not quite sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Real valuable wisdom is learning from other people's mistakes as opposed to having to make them yourself. Some things you just got to experience to really gain a true value on. But I mean, some of those things that you're saying right there are things that you don't even think about, like the soundproofing thing. <laughs> I will take your advice on that, you know, because anything right. after the fact is going to be massively expensive. And, and I mean, people won't come to a restaurant that's too loud. Like it's one of those things like uncomfortable chairs, loud, like, man, everything was really good, but those chairs were really uncomfortable. Like everything was really good, but I couldn't hear. It, 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 people won't come back. It's it's really important. Versus like, mm. tell me honestly how many times you've heard somebody say those plates really sucked. I'm not I'm not going back to that restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that, right? Like, yeah. And I hated yeah. that. I hated that fork. That fork was terrible. We're not going back. <laughs> <laughs> what are some other things that that are just kind of the intangibles that you don't think about till after the fact? Food, service, and ambiance. Those are the only three things that we really have control over, and they're all equal. Um, you know, food is the obvious one. In my experience, I think service to... So here's the thing. As a chef, you rate restaurants according to food. That's my specialty. I think most people don't do that. I think the most important thing to the dining public is service. So you actually will lose more customers with bad service than with bad food. Like you can have great service and mediocre food and people will come back all the time. Now ambiance I think is the least important because man, like if you give me good food and good service, right? Like I'll go to a, I'll go like put it on linoleum, linoleum tiles. Like I, I don't care, but um, so yeah, I mean, those are the things that like the obvious ones. I think the more intangibles is kind of what you guys were asking about that you can get wrong. I think bad bathrooms are really mm. bad, right? Like, mm -hmm. especially, like, I, I might get in trouble for saying this, especially for women, right? Like, women, like, if they don't have, like, I, I spend more time in a design talking about where a woman's going to put their purse by the sink than you could possibly imagine, right? It's just like, <laughs> okay, it's just like, so we're designing a bathroom. It's like, where is she going to put, where's my wife going to put her purse? Because if you just have a place to put it, I'm going to hear about it, right? But if there is a place to put it, she actually registers that moment and will remember it moving forward, right? So mm -hmm. moments like that are really important. Really good bathrooms are really important. And to another point, when we cut at the end of a project, frequently a bathroom is where we'll cut budget at the end of a project because we need to save. So mm -hmm. it's just like to the point that we made earlier about the things you actually don't want to cut versus the things you can cut, I think that reinforces it. Let me tell you one more PST that brought people back. As opposed to having outlets at every two seats along the bar, we put just a full bar of outlets underneath the whole bar. So no matter where you were sitting, it was super easy to plug in. And uh -huh. people would come there and do work early in the afternoon. And we got this kind of early afternoon business rush at the bar that you never would have thought of because we were easy to work at. Right? This is the mm -hmm. big difference, too. You mentioned service as something that is super critical and, and super, I mean, obviously super memorable for good or bad reasons. And that transitions beautifully to a conversation we wanted to have with you just about about tipping 
And it's something you mentioned in an article you wrote for us about how the custom of that, we need to take a look at that as, as a society, as an industry about what that does look like now. Why does it look that way? Does it need to continue to look mm. that way? So let's open up this whole, this whole can of worms and kind yeah, of dive I'm, into I'm it. I'm ready for this. <laughs> what are your, what are your feelings on that, on where we're at now versus where we need to be? Before we really get into it, I just want to say that it is really important that I state that I don't think anybody's getting paid too much money, right? The the, the issue here is equitable pay distribution um, so that cooks can stay in the food industry for a long time. We're losing cooks at a rapid pace because at the rates that we're paying them, it's a good job when you're a single woman or a single man. But once you get to the point when you know you're getting older, you're having a family, like you can't afford to be a cook anymore. And we have to figure out how to pay cooks more. They deserve to get paid more. And the way that you do that is you allow them access to the tip pool. And the question is, how do you do that? Because currently, a gratuity can only be applied to those people that provide service, those employees that provide service. Now, if we switch to a service fee model, everybody in the restaurant can be given access to that service fee. However, the customer can't determine how much they tip, right? Mm -hmm. That's the difference. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to try when my restaurant opens up in November or December. Um, but there have to be a lot of diff a lot of other questions that we can ask about tipping, right? Like, mm -hmm. do we even want to include it, right? Like, does like does tipping need to be a part, or does a service charge need to be a part of a dining experience? Can a chicken cost thirty dollars? It does already, right? Like, Justin, Nate, when you go into a restaurant and you pay twenty five bucks for a chicken, that chicken's costing you thirty dollars. It's just that you have control over how much money you tip. And one of the things that I say all the time, and I, I might have said it to you, Nate, before, there's a lot of power in that tip line. As a customer, when you write down on that tip line what you were going to give for the service that you were given that day, that's really important, right? And if you were to take that line away, or what I'm saying is predetermine how much a person is going to pay for service, that's a really big deal, right? Point of sale is a really important aspect of a dining experience. I, I'm obsessed with point of sale systems, right? Like, ask me to interact with a little screen at Starbucks. It's like, hell yeah. Like, like <laughs> what charity am I giving to, right? Like, you know, like, <laughs> let's do it. I'll give a dollar, right? Like, never say no. So it, it's, it, it's a huge conversation. Like, what do we do with tipping? How do we handle tipping? Um, how do we pay cooks fairly? But I think one of the keys is that we have to get it. We have to start getting the kitchen access to those to those service fees. You kind of touched on it. Is is the culture of tipping in and of itself flawed? Um, you know, this is kind of why you're looking at maybe going to to a service charge. But even then, uh, I I think maybe a lot of people have misconceptions about the profit margins of restaurants. Are the owners and the operators making? gobs of money and they're just shortchanging their their staff bro or no. <laughs> right right I, i'm just I'm <laughs> like, speaking devil's advocate I, here, I, I you know, know i know i know yeah i, I mean is, like uh, we make look a, a restaurant that is operating at like the sharpest of knife like 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 the, like the, this operating as efficiently as possible right like 15 percent is a great number right 
Like that is large restaurant corporations' best operating units, right? And those, believe me, those large restaurant corporations almost always have units that are operating at like 3% too, hmm. or no percent. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for an individually open, for an individual restaurant, like, man, like if you can get into double digits, you're killing it, killing it. So mm -hmm. uh, we're not making much money. Is tipping flawed? I don't think it used to be, right? I, I, you know, the, the restaurant system was what it was. Employees were happy. Owners were happy, but but something is wrong. It, something is very broken, right? Like I, I don't think we need to go back and interrogate what restaurants were before. They went through a they went through a period of thriving, and and they've kind of been in a period of decline for a while now, at least from an owner's perspective. Um, and we just need to fix it. Um, and and I think the thing that we really have to address is tipping. Now there's plenty of people trying this, right? There's plenty of people trying a no tipping system, and mm -hmm. you know, like I'm not going to say it on the record here, but like a lot of them would tell you, and, and I've talked to them, but it's, it's not working out great because people don't want to pay that $30 for a chicken mm -hmm. or because when they try to make adjustments in pay in a restaurant, that's not going well either. Right. Which I totally get, right? Like you, you can't expect somebody who's been making a certain amount of money for the longest time to be asked to, to work for less. So especially because earlier in this podcast, we just talked about how important service was. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, and, and like the, the server is your conduit of service. So there's no easy answers, but I do know that we yeah. have to reassess tipping. Uh, absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest things that, that has kind of been grinding my gears in recent years is all these, these changes in the, the POS is where you can have it uh, right on uh, your phone or this, you know, it's just really modified and easily accessible for, for a lot of different uh, vendors across all businesses. And so, and one of the things is, is with each one of those apps, they all have a tipping module. So tipping has been creeping into other businesses that ha it's never been a, a history there. You know, it's like, I I'm expected to tip when I get an oil change, you know, it's like, or I'm expected to tip you know, when I go to a department store. It's, it's just weird now that, that tipping. And I think it's kind of like, changing everybody's feeling on the culture of tipping in general. And, you know, I, we're, as a society, I think that we've been okay with paying for good service in a uh, hospitality food service, you know, environment. And the fact that it's creeping out is kind of like souring a lot of people just on the entire concept of tipping. Well, like, I, let me, I, I agree with you absolutely, Justin, but let's like, just so, just so the listeners and I'm, we're an industry-based podcast, so I, like I would imagine that most of them know. But let's go over the details of like a tipped yeah. wage structure, right? Like in America, you can pay your employees who will access a tip pool less than minimum wage, right? Because there's a lot less, fifty <laughs> yeah. percent, right? So like, but the tips are so much that, right? It more than makes up for whatever, right? You could pay them half minimum wage in a lot of states, mm -hmm. and a lot of states municipalities are trying to say that you can't i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of pushback against even that right to say that you can pay a tipped position less than minimum wage because in a lot of restaurants look people don't tip 25% right and i get it but like for a place like chicago to look at raising or 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 or, or canceling the policy of being able to pay tipped 
people or tipped employees less than minimum wage, it would be deadly for a restaurant like mine. You know, it would cost upwards of eighty thousand dollars a year for a restaurant like mine. So all the more reason to just forget about tipping, right? Because like, look, I understand why larger municipalities are doing this to say like, you know, you can't pay somebody half minimum wage who's a tip position anymore. You just can't do it. That's fine. I just want to move away from tipping because I think things like this are going to happen even more down the road. To get back to your other question, Justin, I would say the reason why I really hate the fact that tipping is sliding into other professions is because those aren't tipped. Those aren't those employees aren't being paid wages that should be tipped on top of. They're being paid normal wages, mm-hmm. right? So, I think it's really important for the mechanics of the tipping discussion that we actually talk about what its function was supposed to be, which is that. So again, to your point, Justin, yes, it, it definitely it irks me a little bit. And how much of that, Erling, though, to get people along this ends up being an educational process that may take years or even decades to say, hey. If you think about it, and you're for, if you're a responsible tipper, your chicken already costs you thirty bucks. It's just you're choosing to make it cost thirty bucks, and I'm instead of me telling you it's going to cost thirty bucks because this is how everyone's going to get paid. Because I think there is some appetite, sorry for the pun, out there of mm. people who would say, "I tip twenty five percent, and I didn't even know that." I didn't even know that the chef or the bartender or whoever isn't getting an equal cut of that. And if I had an excellent meal and I understand that the chef played as much of a role in this as my awesome waiter did, and the chef worked her tail off to prepare this amazing dish, I would love to know that she gets a cut of this. Like, do you think that there is momentum to be gained through educating diners on that? Or is it something that's way more complex than that? What you're saying, Nate, is the only way to fix this. But it is a long-term education, right? We're talking like, look, like my, my, my dad's 82. I'm like, dad, hey, I'm talking about taking the tip line away at my restaurant. And he's like, you're crazy, right? <laughs> um, so that generation, it, it's going to be harder for our generation. It's going to be, I would say, you know, based on what I see in our faces, for Justin and my generation, Nate, sorry to, sorry to call you (laughs) (laughs) for Justin and my generation, you know, like I I think that it might be easier to adjust, you know, for my nieces and nephews, they'd adjust like that. Right. So I I think we just have to continuously shout that there's an issue with just gratuity and service charge in general, and we'll get there. Right. But in the meantime, a business owner like myself can't afford to have a chicken cost $30 and have somebody not come in because of it. So there's going to have to be a grace period in there. Hmm. How do you, not to make it too personal, but like does knowing all of this and knowing how the sausage is made to borrow a phrase, does it affect your attitude toward tipping or is it something that like, Hey, because you understand all that, it's like, you know what? Like I get it. And even though this isn't going to be distributed the way I wish it would be, I understand the nuts and bolts of how this works. Does does that play into your decision-making process at all? That's a good question. I, I mean, I, here's what I do. I, I, I tip at 20% as a minimum, right, for marginal service, right? And then I, like, I'll tip up to 30 for great service, right? So I, I just know that a restaurant is built on the fact that tipping should be at 20 Right. Like, so that, that's what I do. Like, I, I just understand where we're starting. I understand what assumptions those servers are working under. I understand what assumptions 
um, you know, other customers are, 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 are dining under, right? So that's, that's how I kind of tip right now. Um, but it is, it's a strange system, right? Like you're supposed to be giving a gratuity, but it starts at 20, right? It's just, it, it, the more and more you talk about it, the more frustrating it gets. Well, what about, what about 15%? Where did that number even come from? Right? Like what, what, what arbitrary, what arbitrary <laughs> number was 15, right? Like, well, why do we start there? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's the. That's stuck in a lot of people's brains about like, you know, fifteen percent. That's what I, like my dad. You know, he he tips fifteen percent uh, when he gets good service, and twenty percent if he gets amazing. But yeah, that's just what he grew up with, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, and I'll tell you what. Another thing that's happened is like it's gone up generation after generation. My dad mm-hmm. tips fifteen percent for good service too. I all of a sudden now I don't know what happened. Like, did I have to win against my? I don't know. Like, but I'm <laughs> but I'm twenty now, right? Like, it's it, it ends up being a lot of money, um, you know. And it's strange, but like you know, I I, I I hate to talk about tipping because I want to talk about what comes after it. You know, like what what are other solutions other than just removing the tip line that are possible, you know, Nate, to your point, like just yelling about the education about, I I think most people would assume that cooks are getting tipped. I'll bet you more than 50% of the dining public thinks that tips, that cooks are getting tipped and it's just, it's -hmm. just not true. So I just think that we need to educate the public about what a tip actually is and educate. Cause I I guarantee you, I guarantee you at my new restaurant, when we, when we charge a flat service charge, we're going to get, of a very large amount of complaints, right? Mm. I should be able to determine how much I tip, right? And we're going to have to explain to them. But yeah. at least in that, there'll be an explanation. At least in that, there'll be an education. Yeah. True. <laughs> True. That's a good silver lining. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, would it be weird to any given restaurant and you just say like, hey, I'd like to be able to tip the chefs. <laughs> I kind of want to try this, you know, someplace. Be like, you know, I really enjoyed this meal. Uh, can I tip my chef? I mean, outside of like a sushi restaurant or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think what's happened in the past in that case is they've said, yeah, just put it in the tip and they just haven't told you the truth, mm. right? And <laughs> the, the only way to really do that in a, in, a, in a restaurant, you know, is to give the kitchen cash, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's the way it's always been. Yeah. I think that the educational part of it, though, too, I, I just, I, I wonder... I know it's going to, there are a lot of people, a lot of generations of people that we need to get to in order to see effective change in this. But I do think to your point, Erling, about, hey, 50, I think 50% is probably a pretty good number. It might even be a a conservative estimate of how many people don't realize that like, hey, there's only certain people this this gratuity can go to. I'm I'm hopeful, though it's easy for me being in a different side of the industry than you are to say the shock factor there might move the needle a little quicker than anticipated, at least in certain generations. But I, I, yeah, I think there's so much work to be done, as you said, on the educational side of this, that it's going to take a minute or two, you know? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to take more than a minute. I, I think that, I mean, we got to try. That's the thing, right? We just got to get out yeah. there. We got to get on the ice and we got to try. I That's, you know, one of the things that I think I mentioned to you, Nate, that I'm, that I'm, or maybe I wrote it in one of the pieces that I wrote you. you. You have to ask your clientele for patience. We're gonna try new things. Like we're gonna we're we're gonna we're gonna deliver ambiance. We're gonna deliver food. We're gonna deliver service in dimes. But as far as format goes, 
right? And as far as these long-standing customs go, we're gonna we're gonna question them, and we're gonna challenge them, and and please be patient with us while we do that, right? We're still gonna nail mm-hmm. everything else, but if we're gonna move forward, somebody's got to be doing it. If you approach that with an honest effort at transparency, you, know, you just communicate these these things with your clientele that you know these things are coming and if 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 they aren't surprised by it then it's a lot easier pill to swallow yeah 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 i i I think so too i think being honest with a clientele like we expect it now you know what i mean like there's so many windows into what we do honesty and transparency is expected and appreciated so yeah i totally agree with you I want to shift back to a more philosophical part of the conversation here in terms of how you apply, how you look at food, how you view food through your lens that you strike me as the kind of person who's not super pumped about labels, but at the same time, (laughs) every chef has a style. How do you stay true to what you feel your style of food is or the style of food of a particular concept that you are opening is without painting it into a box and saying, this is exactly what we make and nothing else? Like, how do you how do you try to walk that line? The layers of irony in your opening statement were pretty funny. Um, <laughs> like, you probably don't like being labeled, but then you labeled <laughs> me, but then you labeled me accurately about not liking to be labeled. So that was, that was pretty deep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I hate being labeled, but yes, you've labeled me accurately as not liking to be labeled. Um, and the reason why I don't like being labeled is because there's no good label for me personally, right? I'm a half Chinese, half Cajun kid um, who's been cooking a ton of Italian and charcuterie for his career. And like the food that has come out is incredibly unique and it defies labels. You know, when, when I opened up Pacific Standard Time, people would argue with me about what California cuisine is. And I'm like, man, like, why don't you come eat the food before you start to argue with me? You know, like, come eat the food that I'm cooking. Like, my philosophy, how do I stay true to my philosophy? Like, I just have some very grounding, some very grounding foundational thoughts that I have to stay with. Like, I have to go to the farmer's market. I have to learn what farmers are growing the best stuff. I have to find the freshest stuff. Um, I have to appreciate tastes more than I appreciate appearance. I have to cook over wood. Um, you know, like you just have those things that like can be true no matter what. Right. And, and that's what I really stick to. How did you pick what your tent poles were going to be? How did you develop and learn that these were the, th- how did something come from a, an idea in your head or a method you had tried? How did that transition to something that becomes a tentpole of how you prepare cuisine? Because that's got to be a pretty drastic shift. That's a really good question, man. I, you know, it's just with cooking, the cool thing about it is that I, I think you kind of arrive at them at childhood and you don't even know they were tent posts. But then as you continue through what you do, you just try to keep holding them up. Like memories from my life are largely culinarily based, whether it's just like running around in the yard next to my dad while he was grilling on an old Weber, right? And like just trying to repeat that experience over and over again. And what was it like? It wasn't wood, but he was always lighting the Weber. It was always charcoal. He would never grill over gas, right? He was always just like, he always marinated his meat. He always just like, there was a lot of sugar in it. And just like, you could smell the sugar caramelizing. 
um, you know, other temples, like my mom was huge in farmer's market. And like, you know, I, I used to think it was ridiculous that we would travel 45 <laughs> minutes to get the best strawberries in the area. But lo and behold, you become a chef and what, what the hell are you doing? You're driving four <laughs> farmer's markets away to find the best strawberries. And your cook's like, you're so stupid. Why don't you just go get the ones down the street? And I'm like, where do you taste these? Um, so I, I mean, how, I, it wasn't any, it wasn't a conscious choice by which I chose these tent poles. Um, you know, it's just like another one of my tent poles is like nail bread, right? Like if you're going to do bread, do it perfect. Like you mm -hmm. win, you win a lot of points with really good warm bread. <laughs> People are like, yeah, it's not that important. I'm like, you want to make a bet? <laughs> <laughs> so... And that's because, man, like when you when I was going out to eat as a kid, right? Like, what did you love? Like warm bread, butter basket. Like when it was good, you were like, "This is it. This is it. That's all I need." So you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's kind of how I got to them. Just trying to get back to, just trying to get back to like what I remember from being a kid. It's it's those basic things, quote unquote, basic things that I personally will judge everything else on the menu by. You know, if you can't do rice well, if you can't do a chicken soup well, if you can't do bread well, what are you saying about the rest of your menu? You know, that's that's kind of where my head's at too. So I, I'm glad to hear you subscribe to that philosophy. Yeah, man, I, bread is so like we were just you know at at Pacific Standard Time, pita bread was the thing. People loved our pita at mm. Nico Osteria, which was one of I think probably the the concept that I love the most that I've done so far. I swear to God, what people talk about more than anything else still is the damn olive focaccia that they got for free. <laughs> like, man, did you remember all that cool stuff that I was cooking? They're like, nah, man, but that olive focaccia was the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Do you make a, a mental list or physical list of items like that? Things that people say that bring them back? Oh, yeah. Compliments? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, there's that stuff that just, like, enters your guest's pores. Like, and I have my little secret. I mean, they're not secrets. I'll tell anybody because I because I know I'll do them better. Um, but uh, <laughs> but like cheese and honey, right? That's one of them. Like like whipped cheese and honey, right? People are like, well, man, why is this so good? I'm just like, Cause it's room temperature cheese and honey with warm bread. Like you know, just do it over and over again, or just you know, uh, pasta, right? Like fresh pasta, simply prepared. Right, like with some butter, like people are just like, man, why is this so good? I'm like, because it's warm noodles with truffles and butter on it, right? Like, <laughs> like what do you mean, why is it so good? It's the obvious, it's the obvious answer, right? Or you know, just the combinations that you go to again and again and again. Like, hmm. one of the things that I that like you know chefs try to do is they just try too hard. I was in, you know, I remember. A couple of years ago, we were trying to think of a pairing for burrata cheese, and it was August. And the, these chefs were just like, man, what goes well with burrata? Like blueberries, maybe melon, you know, maybe, you know, we could like fry some, we could fry some broccoli and make it crispy and have some raw broccoli. I'm like, you know what's really good with mozzarella and burrata? Tomatoes, guys. And they're like, <laughs> oh, yeah. You're like, well, like, we're trying way too hard. Like we have the best tomatoes that the Midwest can produce in August. We have the best cheese that we can buy with our money from Italy. Just put them on the plate and put some salt on them. Like we're overcomplicating this issue here. So anyway. When you, this is a question we've asked several people 
who have been on the show particularly recently, but I, I am particularly curious about your answer because food is such a, a passion of yours and such a, like the food part is the part that you clearly take a lot of pride in when you go out to eat, especially because a lot of the cuisine, it seems that you have experience preparing is definitely what I would interpret to be on the higher end of things. When you go out to eat, is there, are you able to turn the foodie part of your brain off to an extent so you can enjoy your meal or are you just are you just constantly thinking about it constantly digging deeper into it or are you just so happy someone else is cooking for you you're you're just along for the ride there's a misconception about what good means to people who cook like I do like good good has nothing to do with how expensive something is right it has everything to do with the three things we talked about before food service and ambiance but it doesn't mean they have to be expensive. Like a, a good a good taco from a truck in L.A., right, can be delicious. It can be served with a little bit of attitude. And it can be, you know, from a taco truck that although it might seem a little bit grimy is the perfect ambiance for the situation, right? Those tacos, <laughs> mm-hmm. like a mo- that I just described to you a moment that I would actually tell you is my favorite food moment of the last four years, right? Right. Like, so absolutely not. Like just the other day, I'm in Florida right now. We, you know, had peel and eat shrimp. Right. And the restaurant had been around for like 20 years. It's an institution that's packed to the gills. It's it's a great experience. Right. So it does not like, honestly, like I don't do fancy food going out anymore. That has something Mm -hmm. to do with the fact that I have a six year old and a two year old. It also has (laughs) something, it also has something to do with the fact that I don't want to eat fancy. And, and, And honestly, my restaurant is not that upscale it's certainly designed but mm-hmm. I, I i just want to eat simple i want to eat i want to eat with the people i want to eat i want to eat in a place where it's going to be an experience not in a place where it's going to be like where my where you know my suit jacket is cutting into my arms you know mm-hmm. that's not what i want i want to have fun yeah what are some things that you're doing to stay on top of things trends keep your chops sharp what are some things that you're just doing to elevate your craft? During COVID, I cooked through my favorite cookbook, like front cover wow. to back cover. Oh, wow. fun. <laughs> simple French food, simple French food. Yeah, I did a little Julie, Julie and Julia action myself. Um, simple French food by Richard Olney. Um, just like one of the greatest cookbooks I've ever read. It, not a single picture in it. So... Sorry, boys. Got to use your imagination. <laughs> um, but it's just like some of like the writing itself is so freaking hilarious and so spot on. Um, you know, he talks about like he, in this book, one of my favorite things, he talks about like that little bubble on a braise when you're braising something and there's a little bubble going on. And there's a phrase in French that means like when you've reached the perfect like occasional bummer. Uh, the the occasional bubble when you're brazing. There's a phrase in French that means everything is going to be okay. It's like when you're watching football on a Sunday and you got the pot of red sauce and you can just go and watch football and know that that red sauce is just getting better and better and better and everything's okay. I'm like, this guy's got it down. He's in rural France. I'm in America watching football. We're talking about the same thing. Everything's good. (laughs) (laughs) So you plowed through that entire book. Did you learn anything new? Oh, yeah, tons, tons. Um, you know, like, like the, the book is really about kind of grandma's cuisine, right? Like the stuff that we love to go over. Like, and, and, like, one of the things I love about grandma's cuisine is that 
like think about how long that repertoire is. Like if you've been going over to grandma's house for forty years and having red sauce, like she's cooked that dish four hundred times, right? Like every single time you cook a new dish, you learn something new. Like one of the things that I really discovered in going through this cookbook again was like when I would I love braising stuff, and we're in winter right now, so that's what's on that's what's on my mind is braising and meat and long cooking. But like. I cook at home a lot now and I was always really careful with the vegetables after you brown the meat to not burn the vegetables. But like, you know, because I cook at home and watching the kids like burn the vegetables a few times by accident when I was kind of browning them and the braise came out better. Right. Like, so like you make these strange, so like when I, when the next restaurant opens, I got to start burning the vegetables when I braise them. <laughs> it's cause it's cause the two year old's crying. Right. Like, but like think like, like it's cause you, but you discovered it like, and you have to like, and this is to go back to cooking with the senses. That's why it's so important. Right. You like, you associate cooking with a fade, like a phase in life and knowing that like a slight more color on vegetables is going to end up making a better braise. Um, you know, that's really important. I mean, also there were things in the book that I hadn't cooked before. And I did skip the lamb's brain poached in court bouillon. I will, I will, I will admit. <laughs> but yeah, there were some recipes that I'd never cooked before, like a larded rabbit and stuff. There was some cool stuff. Larded rabbit. Yeah, I need to look that one up. So you take um, a rabbit and you literally there's a larding needle and you cut pork fat in these long strips. You attach it to a larding needle and you like thread it through the rabbit so like as the rabbit is cooking the pork fat melts on the inside of it oh yeah wow yeah i mean (laughs) you could do that to an old shoe and it would taste good (laughs) i'll challenge you to that (laughs) i'll tell tell you what it it would certainly taste better than the shoe without the fat (laughs) pork pork fat on anything is a is a good thing oh man I, i can't i mean pork is just it's a magical thing pork truly I think we've kind of come to the end of our time. I, I know we've gone past our, our time commitment with you. I appreciate you. Before we let you go, uh, would like to get that inspirational quote or personal mantra, something that you've heard along the way that, that drives a little bit of who you are. Do you have anything like that you could share with our listeners? I got two. I got two. I kind of referred to one earlier. Like, I think looking at the past is important, but it should be done quickly. And I think we should concentrate on what we're doing in the future. I think the other good one that's been really important to me lately is, you know, I'm a, I'm a really critical, often quick to judge person. And I, I just heard somebody say this and I've been using it for the past, I would say just before COVID. It's like, no matter how bad a situation or you think a person is like, find the strand of good in them, right? Like every person has it. And just like in your in your dealings with people like focus on that one strand of good not on all the other stuff that you can focus on i think that's really valuable too could not agree with you more now more than ever i mean Mm -hmm. everybody needs to find a little shred of decency to look in the good in others because you're right it's there it is wonderful well thank you again so much for your time we are definitely going to be coming down and visiting you we'll have some beers We'll do a little remote broadcast, uh, or, or maybe if we get to it, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll come down and definitely visit you. We greatly appreciate you again, and um, yeah, we wish you all the best. Yeah, we can fake the recording issues on that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> all right, guys, take it easy. Have you a good too. one. Later. Man, Nate, I tell you, we could have gone on and on. I know we say that with a lot of guests, but seriously, just, just on the, the component of tipping, we could have made that into 
a three-part series because there's so much to dive into and unpack and evaluate and discuss. We barely even scratch the surface. So, <laughs> but then there's just so much more. You know, uh, Chef Erling is just—he's amazing. He's incredible. He's everything that I hoped he would be on the front end of this, and I'm really looking forward to talking with him more. And that's where that's where these invitations that we've been lucky enough to receive on these podcasts get dangerous because with some of the amazing conversations we've had and the potential yet for even more amazing conversation, it's like we'd never leave some of these places because <laughs> we'd be so locked in conversation, not to mention hopefully enjoying some excellent cuisine too and just good company. That was the thing I really appreciated here with Chef Erling is that he's so intelligent but and thoughtful, but still very approachable and not, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, like comp think about you and I, and yes, we've learned a lot about food service working here. We have access to some incredible people who have taught us some amazing things about food. And if you think about it, everyone's a consumer of food in some way, shape or form. But to be able to have a conversation like we had with someone who knows infinitely more about this <laughs> than you and I combined, mm -hmm. it's so, we're so lucky that way. And that's, that's why when we always wrap up these shows with, you know, me, you and Rich, and we have our recap together, it's like, we are, we are so often saying what an incredible experience it was and what a great conversation it was. And yeah, we say it over and over, but it's just so true. And today was a, just a shining example of being able to, and I hope that our listeners appreciate this too, that we here at Volrath, you and I and Rich appreciate the access we get to incredible minds and incredible people mm -hmm. like Chef Erling. I hope that they understand and don't take this for granted either because um, I learned a ton and it's just, in what other situation would we get to have a conversation like the one we just had? <laughs> Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and more often than not, we get people who are not only intelligent and extremely skilled at what they do, but they're likable people too. <laughs> yes. Just, yes. Uh, with my experience with a lot of other talented and, and smart people is, you know, they might be lacking in the personality department for one reason or another. <laughs> it's, it's, it just almost sometimes seems like I think you mentioned it earlier that nature doesn't allow for all these things to happen. So when they do, it's just really a remarkable thing. And it's uh, really quite an experience to be able to talk with, with somebody who can be so relatable and make you feel comfortable with a topic that they are an obvious expert in and they make it approachable for a novice at best. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. A theme that's really come out of some of our more recent episodes, and, and particularly this one, even though maybe we didn't hone in on it specifically, I, I would like to now. It's just the intrinsic humanity of mm. food service mm -hmm. that it, it not only is it a shame that chefs are so separated from the service side of it so much in most restaurant settings because of the gratuity and all of the stuff we talked about with Chef Erling, mm -hmm. but it's also a shame because you don't really, you're not privy as a, as a customer to what happens on the other side of those double doors. But think of all the incredible people we've talked to who make their living on that side of those double doors. And it's like, that person made food for you. How cool is that? And just, you lose that appreciation. You lose that respect for the food because there is almost this physical divide between mm -hmm. the amazing people we talk to and their food that they're serving for you. That I just, it was such a reminder about the humanity that's built into all of this that sometimes we lose track of because there is that physical separation. Oh, you're, you're so right there because when we think about, we, when we think back to our childhoods and we think about 
our our mother's cooking or father's or grandparents. You know, we have so many wonderful memories tied to the people who are cooking and providing sustenance for us. And it's such an overwhelmingly positive experience that just lives with us and is part of who we are. There's absolutely no reason why that experience and that level of emotional connection and attachment couldn't be applied to your favorite restaurant. And and it is for some people, you know, you have yeah, that favorite yeah. place where where you do make those connections with the people that are actually cooking your food, but by and large it's a rare thing and it should be accessible anywhere. Think of the strawberries. I like how many people would be like I just made a meal from some, or I just ate a meal from someone who cared about this so much that he drove 45 minutes to go get strawberries for yeah. this dish that I am having. Like that, that is that it's obviously not the same, the exact same connection, like you said, of the parent, the grandparent role and that level of connection. But like it's a significant level of connection that sometimes we just don't think about. And I think mm-hmm. that it's this conversation on top of many other things really made me step back and think about the truly human connection of food and that food and people are just, it is intertwined. They are inseparable, but some, some of the evolutions in how food is prepared and served in our country these days have really separated those two. And it's nice that we can have talks like this to kind of bring it back to Mm -hmm. bring it back to the beginning and the way it should be. Right. Absolutely. Restaurants aren't just entities. They're people. Yep. Yeah. They're, they're people. Well, I think that will pretty much do it for today. Um, we'd like to remind everybody to take a moment and hit that subscribe button so that you never miss another moment with a chef or food service industry professional again. And while you're at it, if you'd also share what we have happening here with a friend, family, coworker, somebody that you think would find value in it, we would greatly appreciate it if you let them know the conversations that happen here. And if you'd like to get in touch with us or reach out about a particular topic or give us feedback on the show, you can reach out to us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. All right. And yeah, I'd like to send out a personal thanks to Nate for joining me on the show. I would be completely lost without you. <laughs> so I greatly appreciate <laughs> you filling in for Chef Rich. And, and as we all know, Chef Rich likes to send us off with a quote that means something personal to him. So I'm going to uh, do the same here. And this is something that I've always just found comfort in, and it seems to ring even more true in recent times, but from chaos comes clarity. And for me, that always just means like, the world may be upside down, but once everything starts to settle, you will really truly find what's important to you. So with that, thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next time.